0: welcome back to smoldering wicks i'm kevin fan and i'm super excited to launch smoldering wicks 2023 summer series let the redeemed starting with this week's episode each episode will dive into a segment of psalm 107 break it down and then do the same with a worship song that relates to the passage the heart of this series is for us the church to grow in our delight in the lord jesus christ and his gospel and our goal this summer is to view the gospel more highly than we currently do, to be more thankful for his love and grace than we currently are, and to be more bold to bring the same message we believe in to the nations. Psalm 107, verses 1-3 to reads, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Um, before we get started, a few reminders. First, if you haven't already, uh, be sure to follow Smoldering Wicks on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to get notified whenever new episodes are released. Also, follow us on Instagram at Pod to stay up to date with everything that is happening with our podcast. Second, be sure to visit our Fun Question Friday, concert Request, and Comments Mailboxes. All three are located at Linktree.com slash SmolderingWicksPod. And we're always looking to hear from you guys. Third, not really an announcement, but a personal prayer point. Um, I'm going to be applying to seminary in the fall to get a Master's of Divinity degree. Uh, Please pray that God would give me wisdom and to lead me to the right place to jumpstart my life in full-time ministry. And finally, a reminder to all listeners that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. If you're searching for the steadfast love of the Lord, the only place you will find it is in Christ, because He is the only available Redeemer. He is the only one who can reconcile you to God by His perfect life, His substitutionary death, and His glorious resurrection. Jesus Christ says in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John says in John 3:16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And Romans 5.8 says this, But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And hear the words of the Apostle Peter in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus, and Jesus alone, saves. So if you have not yet put your faith in Christ, Smoldering Wicks welcomes you and says that if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you are already Christian and among the redeemed of the Lord, Smoldering Wicks welcomes you as well. Brothers and sisters, dearly beloved by the Lord, let us walk with the Lord this summer and continue to explore the riches of his grace together. With that in mind, let's get started. Welcome to Let the Redeemed and welcome to Word for Word. The Psalms are a collection of songs written by God's people for God's people. It is the songbook for God's people. These songs were originally sung by congregations in the temple, and they contain so much beautiful doxology and rich theology. In the Psalms, we see the hearts of God's people crying out to the Lord, and in turn, we see the many brilliant shades of the Lord's heart as well. The Jews divided the Psalter into five sections uh, Psalms 1 through 41, Psalms 42 through 72, Psalms 73 through 89, Psalms 90 through 106, and the fifth and final section is Psalms 107 through 150. This psalm we'll be looking at, Psalm 107, kicks off the fifth and final section of the Psalter. So let's read the whole psalm straight through and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed down their hearts. With hard labor, they fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water. He parks land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards, and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low, through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the, the needy out of affliction, it makes their families like flocks the upright see it and are glad and all wickedness shuts its mouth whoever is wise let him attend to these things let them consider the steadfast love of the lord so as you can see the psalm is a long one which is why we'll be breaking it down into smaller chunks as we go from week to week today we'll zero in on the first 3 verses so here they are oh give thanks to the lord for he is good for a steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. And so, a quick prayer. Um, Lord, uh, please give us eyes to see your scripture. Please give us lips to declare that you are good, um, that your grace is sufficient. Give us lips to, to declare your gospel to the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. The psalm starts with, "O oh, give thanks to the Lord." Psalm one o seven doesn't have a listed author or a superscript, so we don't know who the author is or from what context he writes in. But we can reasonably work out the latter from context clues within the rest of the psalm. Um, a good number of psalms start like this with, "O oh, give thanks to the Lord," um, and here's what we can learn from this psalm's introduction. It's a psalm of exhortation and thanksgiving. That is, the psalmist is calling God's people, and the calling is the exhortation. He's calling God's people to give thanks to the Lord, um, and that's where the thanksgiving comes in. Notice also that the psalmist uses the personal covenant name of God, Yahweh. In our English Bibles, this distinction is shown whenever the word Lord is in all caps, and the reason why this is important is because the name Yahweh reflects God's covenant faithfulness. And the psalmist is pointing Israel to give thanks to this kind of God. The God of the Bible isn't distant or cold towards mankind, but rather he is a personal God who enters into covenants with his people. And thus, both the psalmist's exhortation and the thankfulness to which he calls Israel are both relational in nature. The psalmist then proceeds to give away two reasons why Israel should rejoice in Yahweh. And the first is, for he is good. Now, the declaration that God is good can mean many different things. Um, today, thanks to the movie God's Not Dead, um, it's almost a gut reaction for Christians to hear the words God is good and automatically respond with, uh, If you didn't say all the time, you're a worse sinner than those who did. So um, you got to watch that movie. Uh, but joking aside, uh, here are the common meanings. Or here are some common meanings, I should say, uh, behind the phrase, God is good. The first case is that when someone says that God is good, they mean that God has been good to them in particular. He's been faithful to them. And although we usually say this when things are going well for us, the truth is that if we trust in Christ, God is good to us and faithful to us in every season and circumstance, whether things are going well for us or not, whether we feel good at the moment or not. And although we don't necessarily intend to imply that God is only faithful when things go well for us. I think all of us can improve at recognizing his faithfulness to us in all cases. The second thing that God is good can mean is that the character of God himself is good in the sense that he is holy and morally pure. First John five says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Because of this, God neither sins nor, nor tempts people to sin, as James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Furthermore, the Psalms are full of God's love for righteousness and justice, as well as those who practice those things, and his hatred for evil and evildoers. Psalm 11, verses 5-7 to provides a good picture of this, as it says, The Lord... Tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulphur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, He loves righteous deeds, the upright shall behold his face. In this sense, a natural consequence of God's moral purity is that he passionately loves what is good, and is equally passionate in his hatred for what is not good. So in this sense, the knowledge that God is good, presents a huge problem for us because we are not good. Romans 3.10 says that none is righteous, no, not one. And Romans 3.23 says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are deserving of eternal damnation. We're cut off from a relationship with God. And unless we have a Savior, we are hell-bound and enjoying the road that leads to destruction. But as bleak as this problem is, the solution is far greater. Because we cannot save Ourselves, God sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is good, who is morally pure, and who lived the perfect sinless life that we cannot live. And he went to a cross where he took on his shoulders all of God's holy hatred and wrath over sin for everyone who would ever put their trust in him. And as he bore our sins, his perfect righteousness was imputed or credited to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Three days after his death, the Lord Jesus rose again in victorious power, conquering death and grave, securing the promise of eternal life for all who would believe in him. And the reason why all of this is necessary is because God is good. In his moral purity, he will not let sin go unpunished. And in order to save bad people, a good God must take on the punishment for those sins himself. A third meaning that God is good might have, and there are more than three, but I'll cap it at three. Um, A third meaning is that this psalmist, I believe, the psalmist is going for this, and it is that God is good in the sense that he acts righteously. He's good in the sense that he acts righteously. And of course, he acts righteously because he is righteous. That's definition number two. Um, And in the scope of his covenant faithfulness to his people, his faithfulness to them drives his righteous deeds. And that's hearkening back to definition number one. But we're going to park ourselves at definition number three. God is good in the sense that he acts righteously. Because I believe in this psalm, God's goodness is revealed through what he does. There are elements of our first definition of God's goodness, that is God being good and faithful to his people, um, as the next portion of this verse will reveal. But the focus is on how his goodness is revealed through his works instead of you know, just focusing on his faithful disposition or his loving disposition towards his people. And so the second half of this verse... Um, stemming from, for he is good, is, for his steadfast love endures forever. And again, just because our third definition of God is good, being that God acts righteously, is mainly in play, um, or is what is mainly in play, just because that definition is what's mainly in play, doesn't rule out the fact that this is also a psalm about God's faithfulness. It's a psalm about how he is good to his people, how his love remains faithful through everything. But we ought to pick up on how this declaration of God's steadfast love synthesizes with God's goodness. And we got to understand that God's love for his people is righteous. What God has done for his people is motivated by his steadfast love and reveals his goodness. So with that in mind, let's go to the next verse, which starts off with, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And this is part of the exhortation. Who is the psalmist calling to thanksgiving? It is the people of God, the redeemed of the Lord. And in the immediate context, this is Israel. In a greater way, this is all of the redeemed of the Lord. That is, all who put their faith in Christ. But first, let's examine the immediate audience, which is Israel. Um, So, the redeemed of the Lord, Israel, whom he has redeemed from trouble. Now, God redeems Israel from plenty of trouble through the Old Testament, so this by itself doesn't really help us with the context of the psalm, but the second half does. And so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands from the east and from the west, from the north, and from the south. And this is super helpful because it likely sets the context of the psalm in a post-exilic time frame. So this would be after the kingdoms of Israel and Judah and the people are sent into exile and This is during a time where Israel has, at least in part, returned to their homeland. And like I said earlier, they've been rescued and gathered in from horrible situations. Aimless wandering, imprisonment, sickness, and affliction. And they've returned home from all over the known world. We know that this gathering of Israel back to the Promised Land came to pass because the exiles return to Jerusalem and rebuilding of the temple is detailed in Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's also a promise that, that God makes to his people in Isaiah forty nine, twenty two to twenty three, among other places. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations, and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in on their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. God fulfills this promise by delivering Judah from Babylonian captivity and returning his people to Jerusalem. And this is going to be discussed in further detail in the coming weeks as we look at the rest of the passage. Uh, But just to know for now, God's righteousness is primarily shown in his faithfulness to this particular promise that he made. To follow through on his word and to keep his promises is to act righteously. So, this is where our passage for today ends, but I'll close by connecting this back to the gospel and to give us um, a few points of application. So first, how does this passage point us to Christ? Well, first, let's consider the goodness and steadfast love of God that we really ought to be more thankful for. Does it ever amaze you that a good God could love, save, and remain faithful to wicked sinners like us, and remain righteous in the way he does all of this? Israel and Judah were led back home. In a greater way, we are sinners by nature and sinners by trade. We are far off from God, cut off from relationship with him, And just like Israel, we all need God to bring us home. But the problem with that is that he won't forgive us by snapping his fingers and overlooking our sin. He's good. To bring us home, he has to find a way to save us while remaining righteous and punishing our sin. So how does God forgive and rescue sinners while acting righteously? He sends his only son, the Lord Jesus, to be punished in their place. This is the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Romans 3, 23 to 26 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this is the key part. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Have you ever wondered how a holy God would pass over the sins of some in the Old Testament? Like, how does Abraham and Moses and David get forgiven? How can he pass over their sins? The answer is because a good God has paid for all of their sins in Christ. This is the only way that a good God can be just and the justifier of wicked men who believe in Jesus. And never forget, Christians, how wonderful of a gift it is to be called the redeemed of the Lord by the God of the Bible who is good. Never forget that. Never forget how good it is. Never forget how, how gracious of a gift this is. Second, let's consider who the Lord redeems. He redeems people from the lands, plural, From every direction, north, south, east, and west. And just as God brought Israel back to the promised land from all over the surrounding nations, so will God bring all of his people home Jews and Gentiles. He'll bring them home into his kingdom from every tribe and tongue and nation from the ends of the earth. And this redemption promise is just as sure as the first. He will do this by the preaching of the gospel. That Christ Himself has commissioned to His followers. So, with this in mind, with how this passage connects to Christ in mind, we've got three applications. The first being understand that God loves His people faithfully and righteously. Yes, God is good to His people. Yes, God has steadfast love for His people. But we must understand that just because God loves us doesn't mean everything's going to turn out how we want. You know how God was good to Job? He let Satan wreck nearly every part of his life. You know how God loved his people faithfully in this psalm? He disciplined them in exile for a few hundred years before delivering them from from, from captivity. You know how God might be loving you faithfully? He might have you in an absolute funk right now. He might be introducing something in your life that you have no shot at handling by yourself. And that saying that God gives us toughest battles to the strongest soldiers, or that God will never give you more than you can handle, that's just not true. And it belongs to a, this power of positive thinking, this prosperity gospel kind of teaching. Because God put Charles Spurgeon on a lifelong battle with depression and gout. And he put John Newton on a wooden ship in a stormy sea. But that's how he loved them. So, first application, we got to understand that a little bit better and lean on that more and more every day. Second application point, understand that the psalmist's call, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, is meant for you and for me. We possess the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the testimony of salvation for sinners who believe upon him. So, how on earth can we then sit silently, And stand off to the side. Is God good? Then tell someone that a good God made us to be in relationship with him. And that we being the wretched sinners that we are have screwed all of that up. Will God deal with that righteously? Then tell someone that God will deal righteously by punishing their sin. Either through eternal damnation in hell or through a sin bearing savior. Has God been good to bad people? Then tell someone that this sin-bearing Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ, and that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Tell the story, Christians. Preach the gospel. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Finally, third, understand that the gospel is for all people, no matter how sinful they are, because God Saves sinners. No one is outside of the reach of his grace. From an objective standpoint, Israel, who were guilty of all sorts of wicked sexual sin and idolatry and stuff like that, they were so unworthy of God delivering them from their bondage. And sometimes we might feel less inclined to share the gospel with someone who just seems like a worse sinner than others. Someone who just doesn't reach our arbitrary standard of deserving to hear the gospel. We've all been there, haven't we? We've all recoiled at the thought of approaching certain groups of people with the good news. But God saves even the chief of sinners to the praise of his glorious grace. His gospel is for rapists, for murderers, for homosexuals, for drunkards, for porn addicts, to demon worshippers, and it's for sexual deviants. It's for everybody. Now, loving and sharing boldly with these communities does not mean acting foolishly and does not mean acting without regard for the safety and the sanctification of the local church, and particularly our children. And they don't deserve to hear the gospel, because none of us do. None of us deserve to hear the gospel. But the gospel was never intended to be for those who deserve to hear it. For God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Don't discriminate in your preaching of the gospel. That's application number three. So let's be a church that understands better that God loves us righteously in all seasons. Let us be a church that understands better that the preaching of the gospel is on all of us. Let's be a church that understands that the gospel is for everybody matter how bad of a sinner that they may seem to be, it's for everybody, that we were once like them, but now we've been sanctified and washed and regenerated by the Spirit of God. We were once sinners, and so how could we withhold the gospel from others? Frederick Martin Lehmann was born on August seventh, 1868, in Mecklenburg, Germany. When he was four, his family would emigrate to America and settle down in Iowa, where he would come to Christ at the age of 11. Lehman was a businessman, but he also pursued a theological education, helped pastor the local church, was a prolific hymn writer, and even helped found the Nazarene Publishing House in 1911. After his business failed and he moved to Pasadena, California, Frederick began packing crates of oranges and lemons to make ends meet. One Sunday night, he heard a sermon about the love of God that was so powerful he couldn't stop thinking about it at work. During work breaks, as he continued to ponder the sermon he had heard, he composed the first two stanzas and chorus of his most famous hymn, The Love of God. Here are the first two stanzas followed by the chorus. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star. And reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. When hoary time shall pass away and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall. When men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call. God's love, so sure, shall still endure, all measureless and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints' and angels' song. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure, the saints' and angels' song. But Frederick wasn't satisfied. He and his daughter, who helped set the hymn to music, tried to come up with a third stanza, but they couldn't. And that was when he recalled a poem that had been written a few hundred years earlier that he had heard before and treasured the words from. This poem had been scribbled on the walls of an insane asylum and was found after the prisoner had passed away. It was a translation of an Aramaic poem written by Meir ben Isaac Nehoria, a Jewish rabbi around 1000 AD. And though there is no record of whether this rabbi had accepted Christ, his words were a beautiful description of the magnitude of God's love and had stuck with layman for some time. Realizing that the poem fit perfectly with the first two stanzas, layman included these now famous words as the third stanza of his hymn. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Let's break down this hymn, starting with the chorus. The chorus starts with, O love of God, how rich and pure! The richest and purity of the love of God are unparalleled. Part of God's self-revelation to Moses in the cleft of the rock in Exodus 34 is that the Lord is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We learn in our psalm today that God's steadfast love endures forever. In other words, he does not lack for steadfast love whatsoever. And not only is he rich in love, but he delights in giving it away to us and for our sake. As for the purity of God's love, we need only hear the truth from the Lord Jesus himself, who said in John 15, 13, Greater love knows no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. The greatest, the most pure expression of love ever is the love of Jesus going to the cross and paying for our sins. So, O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. Scripture compares the measure and strength of God's love to a wide variety of tangible things, all to try and capture in human terms how great his love is. And I'll provide you with two examples. In Psalm 103, verses 11 to 12, God's love is compared to the distance between the heavens and the earth, and his grace is compared to the distance between the east and to the west. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. But the most famous example is in Isaiah 49, verses 15 to 16, which compares God's love to the love of a mother for her child. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, Your walls are continually before me. How rich is God's love? So rich that it never runs out. How pure is God's love? The purest demonstrated in the Son of God, willingly giving his life to save people like you and like me. How measureless is the love of God? Look from the ground your feet stand on into the sky and the stars above, then try and look a bit further. How strong is the love of God, so strong that it surpasses even the greatest love known to us in our human experience. Many mothers have failed to love their children, but God's love does not fail. And So the second half of the chorus goes, It shall forevermore endure, the saints and angels song. Now this line is split in half uh, by an m dash between endure and thee which gives us clarity on what layman is going for. He's saying that the saints and angels' song is the love of God. That the love of God is the subject of their song, the root of their affections. It's the heart of the gospel. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, right? If this is our song, then we must be a church that sings, both literally as a congregation of voices, but... Also, figuratively, as a church that cannot stop proclaiming the gospel until the end of time. Because the love of God is the saints and angels song. Now we're going to move on to verse 1. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. I think this line is pretty straightforward, but it's worth meditating on. Uh, Paul puts it nicely in Ephesians 3 when he says that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. We can't express it properly and fully, and we're too limited. So yeah, that's pretty straightforward. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. And it's time to pull from the Apostle Paul again. One of the most famous passages on the love of God, perhaps second only to John 3.16, is Romans 8.35-39, which starts with the question... Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is, as Paul takes the time to close off any loopholes or exceptions, is absolutely nothing can separate us from this love. For us who are in Christ, nothing can now separate us from his love. Included in this lengthy answer is this neither height nor depth. And this is where I believe the heart of this lyric lies within God's love for those whom he saves. Whether we've, in our sin, ascended the heights of the vanity and the pride of men or descended into the pit of despair, God's love for his people finds them there. The prodigal son was utterly lost, but as he was still a long way off, the father ran out and hugged him and kissed him and prepared a party and a robe and some shoes and a ring. And while we were a long way off, Christ came down from heaven to take us in as well. So the second half of verse 1 continues with, The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Who are the guilty pair? I believe that the guilty pair are the first sinners in the garden, Adam and Eve. They deserved immediate death for what they did. For in the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. But instead of killing them on the spot, God kicks them out of the garden alive with a covering for their nakedness and a gospel promise to cling to. And this guilty pair, just like you and I, were spared because God did not spare his only son. From the garden and until now, from now until the end of time, the blood of Christ is the only way of salvation. Hebrews 10 verse 12 says that Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Why were Adam and Eve spared? Because they looked dimly to the saving work of Christ, who would crush the head of the serpent. And from Adam, the erring child, comes the greater Adam, who will reverse everything that he did. What went wrong because of the first Adam, the second Adam will make right. So let's move on to the second verse. When hoary time shall pass away And earthly thrones and kingdoms fall when, when men who hear Refuse to pray On rocks and hills And mountains call This word hoary Has been restated in modern hymnals As years of time And it's spelled H-O-A-R-Y And it kind of has um, Old or aging as like a loose meaning um, So let us go with As years of time um shall pass away. Verse 2 uh kind of starts with an end times feel to it. So on the end of days, as years of time pass away, on the end of days, all earthly thrones and kingdoms will fall because the king of kings will arrive in glory and in wrath. Um Daniel loves to talk about all of these temporary kingdoms one day giving way to an everlasting kingdom. Um And Revelation 6, verses 15 to 7 says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Again, kind of like an end times element to it. And Layman uses the first half of this verse to paint a bleak reality that on Judgment Day, men who don't trust in Jesus, those who refuse to pray, will, instead of turning to Jesus, call on the rocks and the mounts to fall on them instead. They cannot escape and they know it. And so they ask that the rocks and the mountains, they call on those things to fall on them instead of trusting in the Lord. And this is a bleak, bleak picture of the Day of Judgment. But Layman uses the first half of this verse to beautifully, beautifully set up the second. God's love, so sure, shall still endure, all measureless and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints' and angels' song. In the day of wrath, when all things pass away, the love of God remains. Or, as Paul puts it simply in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love never ends. And those who find themselves in the saving love of Christ are left unharmed by the judgment. They're spared. And this is all due to grace. In the chorus, we see the theme of our song, the love of God. But in verse 2, we see the specific message contained within this gospel song, God's redeeming grace to Adam's race, that is, God's grace for sinners in Jesus Christ. And so, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. This is our song. Now, for the famous third verse, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The third verse takes the time to beautifully express the immeasurable nature of the love of God in a metaphor, the point being that no matter how many men take the time to write, no matter how big or or, or how vast our parchment is, or how much ink we have, we cannot fully express the love of God. It is, along with the rest of God's attributes, the great untouchable. And Paul's prayer for the Ephesians church in Ephesians 3, in part, is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And so Paul's prayer introduces a paradox for us that we can never comprehend fully but as we grow in our sanctification as we are able to comprehend more and more of something that is eternal and infinite and so um, yeah it's absolutely beautiful and so I know that I've gotten requests in the comment section um, to just be like like hey Kevin like You should totally sing one of these hymns. But for now, I'll just read it again. Because I think, as a spoken word, this is beautiful. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bow down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong! It shall forevermore endure the saints' and angels' song. When years of time shall pass away, and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love, so sure, shall still endure, all measureless and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints' and angels' song. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure, the saints' and angels' song. Could we with ink the ocean's fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Thanks for listening to the first edition of our summer series. Before I let you go, I must remind you that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All of the saving love and redeeming grace that God has for sinners like you and me is found in the Lord Jesus. You do not deserve it, because He is good and you are not. But He is also good to bad people, and He is able to forgive us and remain righteous through the blood of Christ that was shed for sinners on the cross. If you do not know the Lord today, if you do not know the steadfast love of God in Christ, put your trust in Jesus today. Believe that he lived and died and rose again on your behalf and paid for your sins. Believe that he is the Son of God who lives today to be your Savior because everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. If you already know the Lord and have been saved by a steadfast love for you, then your way forward is to sing. And I don't mean just making music. Your way forward is to go and tell. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Go and preach the gospel to anyone who hears, because the most beautiful song of all, the one that testifies of God's redeeming grace towards sinners in Christ, belongs to the saints. Brothers and sisters, it belongs to you and me. So we got to preach it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I love you all. Thank you for listening and see you in two weeks.